This is a Rooster Teeth production. On January 5th, 1935, a man by the name of Ronald T. Owen was found beaten and stabbed in his hotel room. During his stay, numerous guests had strange encounters with him as well. Unfortunately, no next of kin could be found and an anonymous donor had paid for his funeral services. Today, we discuss the unsettling case of Room 1046. This is Red Web. Mystery Monday! What's up, everybody? I'm Trevor Collins, your mystery enthusiast, extraordinaire, locale, whatever you want to call it. I'm in your neighborhood talking about the creeps. With me, as always, Alfredo Diaz. We got a mystery on our hands. This seems like a whodunit type thing. Whodunit. I feel like we might we might be like, was it this person? Was it that person? I don't know. This one's going to get windy, creepy, twisty, turny. It's super unsettling. So, hey, if it's 3 a.m. where you are and you're listening to this, good on you. It's going to get weird. It's supposed to be a scary one? (laughs) What are you talking about unsettling? Picture this, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set the scene before we even get into the timeline. Okay, I've got my canvas. I've got my, um, my crayons. Yeah, go ahead, get your crayons out. Start drawing the scene. Okay, picture this: Alfredo Diaz walking down the hallway. He's got the cart. He's in the hotel room. He's been working there for a while. He likes this place. Okay, he's coming up on room 1046. He says, "Hello, housekeeping." My favorite room. May I come in? They, they, they don't answer. You just go in because it's your job. No one's there. You got to keep the place clean. You go in, and the rooms are the lights are out, okay, except for one dim lamp in the back, and there's a gentleman just laying there on the bed, trench coat and everything, shoes probably still on. Okay. Sitting there in the dark. He's got a trench coat. Mhm. And he says, "Go ahead. Go ahead clean the place." No, go no, no. Go ahead, clean. And he just sits there in the dark what? as you clean day in and day out. What what? Man, creepy, huh? I didn't expect that. I didn't expect somebody to be like, yeah, just clean in front of me. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, I I don't know about that. Yeah, I like to watch people clean. I don't know, yeah. Down between the couch cushions. Ooh, you found a nickel? Is that a dime? Dang. That took a turn down a really weird road. <laughs> it, like I said, this one's very strange. And uh, we're going to start with a bit of comedy because it it's definitely going to get kind of like it's going to get nefarious in here, as we always do. OK, OK. So let's let's right. dive into the Give timeline. We're going to go into everything we know about this case, the investigation, the things that unfolded after the investigation. As always, we'll wrap up with the popular theories as to what went down here maybe trying to answer the questions, connect the dots, draw that red web out. So the task force, get your deer hunting hat on, whatever the hat is that has two brims on it. Show me your badges. Get your badges out. You got to whip them out real quick. You know, you don't want the whole public to see. Anyway, let's dive into it. You got to be ready for it. Here we go. January 2nd of 1935. So this is a while ago. Roland T. Owen checks into Hotel President. He gives a Los Angeles address. He arrives with no luggage. He's dressed well, and he looks like he might be in his early 20s. He asked for an interior room, many floors up, and paid for one night only. The hotel staff noticed that Owen had a cauliflower ear and a distinctive scar above his left ear, and so they assumed that he might be like a wrestler type. The bellhop, Randolph Propst, took Owen to his 10th floor room, which was again facing the interior courtyard per his suggestion. Owen complained at that moment as they were going to the room about the high $5 cost that he had spent the night before at Mulebach Hotel, where he had, like I said, recently stayed. And just for you to have some context here, $5 at that time is equivalent to about $100 today. So here we see... I was just about to say, like... Inflation in I mean, I knew this was back then, but $5? Damn! McDonald's is more expensive than that. (laughs) Well, you know, it's $100 today. So, like, you know, rooms are way more expensive. We're seeing inflation happen in real time, folks. So anyway... He gets this room, he starts complaining conversationally about this hotel the night before. Maybe that's why he's here, he's looking for a cheaper stay. All right. So Props, the individual who was taking him to his room, also noticed that Owen only unpacked a few things. A brush, a comb, and a toothbrush all from his pockets. 
Propst and Owen both went to leave the room at the same time upon arrival, and so they left. Props then closes the door and locks it. It's, it's worth noting here that these doors lock from the outside in this particular hotel, and when the individual is in the room, it tends to stay unlocked, only being locked when Weird. they go out and about. Yeah, it's very strange. So he gives the owner the key and then he goes back to whatever hotel stuff he does. So then when you're just like sleeping and or you're just exposed like that? Yeah. People can just come on in, I suppose. All right. Okay. Or you could just get locked in. I it doesn't make much sense to me. But no, it's typical of the 30s. People are trusting, leaving doorknobs all twisty turny. Listen, I gotta make sure that my door's tight and locked, both sides. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> Oh, man, I would not play that ever. Mm-mm. Maybe this is what helped spur the change. But we'll, yeah, we'll maybe get this, this is like, a, we're just testing things out. What if we do it the <laughs> other way? <laughs> this <laughs> and then is the beta very quickly, the no, that's not work. No, <laughs> we, we beta tested that you lock on the opposite side. It's very inconvenient uh, anyway. So they both left the room. Uh, props, the, uh, the bellhop locks the door, gives the key to Owen. Props then saw Owen leave the hotel. Not long after that, housekeeper Mary Soptic went into the room to clean, expecting the woman who had actually stayed in that room the night before, but Owen was in the room, and so that kind of startled her, but Owen said, no, it's okay, uh, you can continue cleaning, please and thank you. Uh, I'm giving him manners, I don't really know if he said right. that. Right, <laughs> if but, he was actually uh, polite you know, or not. Yeah, so he says, no, 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 it's uh, fine, keep cleaning. He kept all of the lights off, except for the bedside lamp, and the shades were tightly drawn. This would be the case every time an employee had entered this room here to forward. A, a dim bedside lamp, curtains drawn, everything else dark. Okay. Owen left room 1046 with Soptic still cleaning and told her to leave the door unlocked as he was, quote, expecting friends. Soptic then returned at 4 p.m. with clean towels, surprised to find Owen back in his room, in bed, fully dressed in his overcoat and pants. And then there was a note actually on the dresser nearby that read, quote, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait, end quote. Soptic told police later on that he seemed that he was either worried about something or afraid. So he was sitting in bed, either worried or afraid of something. This person has a lot going on for a hotel room. It, yeah. Like a lot. There's, there's a lot of activity. I, listen, I put the do not disturb and I don't see, I don't get a peep out of anybody yeah. and I love it. <laughs> this person has, everybody knows about him. Everyone's in and mm -hmm. now moving, so many moving pieces. I'm exactly with you. I go mm -hmm. there, I unpack, I sleep there and then I, and I leave during the day. This is the place for me to be unconscious safely and then I'm out. And maybe that's just a product of the times, you know, in the 30s, maybe they were a much more social bunch. They like yeah, to yeah. get their shoes shined by whoever's walking around. The, they, they left their shoes outside in the hallway these times of day or these times of uh, year or whatever. In the 1930s, people were just very trusting. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. you know, there's people floating about, they got time to kill. Different These days times. we're all very efficient. You know, we're, we're strapped in, eyes glued to the phone, always working on something. Very productive. But anyway, that concludes January 2nd. That's the first day of this whole event. The next day, January 3rd, Soptic again returned to the room 1046 the next day around 1030 AM and found the door was locked from the outside leaving Soptic to assume that Owen had gone out, as you would. But when she unlocked the door to go inside and clean, she found Owen inside the room, and he told Soptic she could continue cleaning. While she was cleaning, Owen actually did in fact answer the phone, and he said this, quote, no, Don, I don't want to eat, I just ate breakfast. Repeating again, quote, no, I'm not hungry. With the phone still in hand, Owen turns and asks Soptic about her job, asking if she was in charge of the entire floor and if the hotel was residential and things of that nature. And again, he complained about the price at Mulebach Hotel. Later that day, around 4 p.m., Soptic again returned to the room 1046 to deliver towels as she had done the day before, and she heard at this moment two low voices, one much lower and rougher than the other. She knocked on the door and the rough voice responded with, who is it? She told the voice that she was bringing fresh towels to which they responded, we don't need any. But Soptic, having cleaned the room earlier that day, knew that they did in fact need mm -hmm. towels because she took them all to be cleaned, you know? So she knew that right. they didn't have any towels and right. she's well, like, I know you need them. I know you need these. 
So this is strange, but okay, fine, sure, you don't have your towels. That night, other guests noted an abnormal amount of yelling and arguing, kind of in that area, but the issue here is that it's also worth noting that there was a party about nine rooms down at 10.55. Oh, okay, so it could have just been some party. That it could have been on. that party. The problem is uh, the layout of the hotel, it still exists, uh, but the layout of that hotel has changed, and today, you know, a hotel room could be three numbers off, but on the opposite side of the building, so it's really hard to say if the party was interfering, how big that party was, if it was actually close by. It just kind of muddies the waters when it comes to the evidence right. here. But anyway, that concludes January 3rd. On to the next day, January 4th, the phone operator, Della Ferguson, intending to give Owen a 7 a.m. wake-up call. She actually noticed that the phone was off the hook. The first bellboy that Owen had encountered, Propst, the one who uh, originally brought him to the room, went then to room 1046, but the room was locked and there was a do not disturb sign on the doorknob. And I want to pause for a second again because this is another moment where the door is locked, yet supposedly he is inside. So it's clear that something else is going on here. Unless he's climbing out the window and doing some sort of sh shenanigans, uh, someone's locking him in the room. And he's just kind of chilling? He's just vibing in the in the bed with his I'm trench coat so, on? So, I'm just so, so confused about this door. <laughs> I know I shouldn't be stuck on it, but I'm just like... Why? I, why is I it like I don't know that? why it's like this. It it seems like it, so that way it, <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm trying to find the logic in it. It even makes this story kind of just like, okay, all right, wait, all right. So it's locked now, so that means somebody is not in it, mm -hmm. but uh, okay, like. It's the opposite <laughs> of what it should be. You know, if you're well, it should always be locked nowadays. But when he's in it, he can't physically lock it because the lock is on the outside. The intent is that if he leaves and he leaves his personal items and personal effects in the room, he then locks it and goes about his day. And so when somebody comes up to the door and sees that it's locked, they would be, well, typically they'd be accurate in assuming, hey, the person's out for the day. It should be empty. And then they use one of their skeleton keys in order to get in, you know, a, a staff right. key that can open all the doors. But again, like earlier, on, you know, on January 3rd, she opens the door and he's in there. And I guess she didn't really think much of it, but how, why, okay, why is he sitting on the bed in his trench coat, pants, and everything, in the dark, still, just saying, no, no, go ahead and clean, when someone clearly had locked him in there? Yeah, so someone someone's got his key. left, locked it, has the key, and he's just chilling. He's just chilling. And okay. later that night, uh, just to flash back again... She is on her routine. So at 10.30, it seems like she is cleaning. And then at 4, she seems to come back with the with the linens, right? The towels and stuff. Mm -hmm. And when she came back that second time, she heard two voices in the room. So we got somebody else in play. Uh, somebody with a deep, rough voice and somebody else, just another gentleman's voice. I don't know if that's the same guy, if she recognizes that voice. I don't have that information. But so that so we have somebody else's in play. And we know someone else has to be in place simply because he's being locked in. Right. But anyway, the next day, uh, you know, someone's like, I'm going to give this guy a phone call to wake him up. 7 a.m. I can't. The phone is dead. It's been unplugged from the wall. So the bellhop that brought him to the room comes up to the room to check on everything. And he sees a do not disturb sign on the doorknob. And again, the door is locked. And so you would once again assume this guy's out and about. So he knocks on the door. And a deep voice from within says, come in, turn on the lights. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. But again, the door was locked. And so props, props is like, she says, do not disturb. That's ominous. I'm just going to knock a couple more times. And if you don't come to the door, I'm bouncing. There's so much traffic through this damn doorway. It's insane. <laughs> like, it, it's like, it, it's like a, uh, a vigilant state too. You know, like, yeah. I, listen, I, maybe I pulled my phone out because I didn't want any more telemarketers and you're, and you're in here sending the bellhop because I unplugged my, my phone. Like, let a man be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anyway, he can't get in, doesn't get in at least, knocks a couple more times to no avail and assumed Owen was drunk and told him to put the phone back on the hook. He says, listen, man, I'm not coming in there. Please just plug the phone back into the wall and we'll be good. good. And he leaves. Smart, smart. Yeah, very smart. Come in, turn on the lights. Like, come on, what is that? Like, why don't you come on inside? 
Maybe, uh, get, maybe scrub the counters. All right, I get the whole like, all right, uh, come in, you know what I mean? But come in, turn on the lights. Like, what? Why are they? <laughs> what? 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 It's I'd be so taken no back less. by that. It's just, it's I, yeah. such a weird like line to follow that up with. Mm-hmm. You're like, I don't know what I'm gonna see if I open this door and turn on the lights. I'm, I'm. Listen, I've, I've seen too many movies. I've done too many of these episodes now. I'm good. Just plug the phone in, please. Yep. An hour and a half later, at 8.30 a.m., the phone is still off the hook, and I don't know why they're bugging so much about this phone, but maybe it's a good thing. Because another bellhop then goes to the room, his name is Harold Pike, goes to the room, lets himself in, finds Owen asleep, naked, and with dark stains around him on the sheets. Pike also believed that Owen was drunk. The phone stand was kicked down, so Pike had to pick it back up, and he plugged the phone back in himself, put the phone back on the hook, and left. At 10.30 a.m., two hours later, the phone was again off the hook. Propst was sent again to check on the room. This time, Propst did in fact allow himself back into the room, turned on the lights, only to find Owen, still naked, but two feet in front of the door, covered in blood. Oh. Oh yeah. Oh. Owen was still alive. He was on his knees and elbows, and the walls were splattered with blood. Propst went to get help, but when the assistant manager returned, as well as Propst, they could only open the door about six inches or so because Owen had fallen near the door. So the door was basically yeah. uh, bumping into him. At that point, they called the police and Owen got up to sit on the edge of the bathtub. When the police arrived, they had Dr. Harold Flanders of Kansas City General Hospital kind of talking to Owen and he found that he had been tortured, stabbed multiple times above the heart area, he had bruises on his neck, and he had cords around his neck, wrists, and ankles. And then when asked who had done this to him, Owen simply responded, nobody. Owen told Dr. Flanders that he had fallen and that he hit his head on the bathtub. And mind you, remember, there was blood all over the walls, a little bit on the ceiling. It it was all over this bedroom. And he was like jabbed in the heart. So what do you fall on like a razor toothbrush? Like what, is, what are we talking right, about? Like he, only, he didn't he didn't have a whole lot in this in this apartment or in this hotel room. Yeah. So this is so this is interesting. Dr. Flanders asked Owen if he had attempted suicide, and this is where he quickly responded with no. Uh, then Owen lost consciousness at that point. He was taken to the hospital, uh, but by the time he had arrived, he was unfortunately in a coma, and he died later that night at the hospital around midnight. So this is where our investigation begins, diving into the mystery, diving into any eyewitnesses, because clearly we have a handful here, but at this juncture, what are you feeling, Fredo? I wanna do a, a classic Alfredo gut check on this man. Dude, everybody's a suspect. Get everybody on that lineup, okay? Because this is the most attentive, responsive hotel in the history of hotels. <laughs> so it's true, man. Get every single person that's worked there in the precinct. You know what I'm saying? Put them in the, mm -hmm. I don't know, it was a 1930, put, I don't know, paddy wagon. Put them in the paddy wagon. <laughs> Ship them over to the precinct, okay? <laughs> like, get them out of Strap here. Strap them to the horse. Let's go. <laughs> Start questioning away because. I, and also, change these damn locks. It's the most confusing part of this damn story to me. When you're talking yeah. about so many people going in and out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just, just, just to me going, uh, okay, out, in, out, <laughs> in, out. Okay. In, out, out. Locks means this, that means that. Okay, got it. Wait, what? <laughs> no, it's totally fair. If you have any questions, please let me know. I want to clarify because this, this is confusing. The, the <laughs> yeah. locks are like opposite to logic. They're on the outside. It doesn't no, make sense. So if you have any good. questions... Let me know. It's just so ridiculous. It it's is. like you have this intense kind of like, I don't know, this this room and the people in it and the person in it. It's just it's very intense and weird and unsettling. Mm -hmm. And then you have this weird gimmick that is this damn lock. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so <laughs> no, stuck on it. I'm sorry. Man aside, let's get to the bottom of this lock situation. <laughs> I apologize. It's just the weird. No, no, it's totally fine. It's like oh, a, it's, it is a huge factor here in trying to kind of reverse engineer the story. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a huge component and it really is probably a key component because that's the only real way outside of the two voices that you're figuring out that this guy's got someone else with him because how's he locking himself in? Uh, who's that second voice? You know, why do people keep thinking he's out and then he's actually in there? But I'm glad you cued in on it. I'm not trying to foreshadow anything, but like you cued in on this hotel being very attentive and that just might be good service. 
Or, you know, it could be something nefarious. You, we just don't know. My God. Is the whole we'll dive into entire it. hotel in it? Don't tell me. Let's just go. Oh, man. <laughs> hotel murder. Come on down. What's interesting, I don't know if I was going to segue into this later on or not, but I'm just firing from the hip like I like to do. This hotel still exists. I called them Alfredo Diaz, and I said, do you have 1046 available? <laughs> you need to stop. You need to stop. <laughs> For a split second, I was like, what? And I was like, nah, you madman. I'm a madman. The hotel does, in fact, exist. They closed their doors somewhere, I I believe, in the 80s or something, and then they refurbished it, and they came back. It's uh, it's some sort of Hilton hotel now, so maybe if they want to sponsor, we'll scoot up in there. I think I I asked the lady, I was like, listen, I know this is going to be a weird question, but I got to know. I'm doing a report. This is my report, Alfredo. Feel free to grade me. Your book report. Here we Uh, go. (laughs) (laughs) I was like... Are the is the number of the room are like are they the same as the original building? Because the building is the same, the interior is all changed. And she says, no, uh, the original room was. And I didn't even ask for the specific room. I just asked, are the numbers the same? And she said, no. But the room you're looking for is between 10:05 and the ice machine room. So you can rest easy knowing that no one's sleeping where this unsettling, creepy man was just loitering on a bed in a trench coat, <laughs> just hanging out, just hanging out. Maybe I should ask him if the doors still lock on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's dive into the investigation because it it really starts to get twisty turny because you don't know much about what's going on. So far we have an individual, a second individual of some sort, but you have this one guy sitting in a dark room who winds up getting just brutalized and unfortunately passing away. And didn't want to say anything about it. And didn't even want to say anything about it. And we'll kind of touch on that a little bit in the theories section. But yeah, let's let's get into what the PD was kind of figuring up. So, because the bloodstains on the walls and on the ceilings had solidified by the time that help had arrived, Dr. Flanders found that Owen sustained injuries probably around 4 to 5 a.m., meaning that this actually occurred before the first bellboy had visited again at 7 a.m., if you recall. And then at 8.30 when the second bellboy came in, Again, the scene was set. He saw the dark stains on the bed, but the lights were out. So he was in a crime scene and didn't even know it. And at 7 a.m., the crime was probably already happened, right? And whoever responded, whether it was the second party that we don't know, or whether it was Owen himself, seemed to kind of say, like, come on in and turn on the lights. Yo, what? We're assuming that the crime scene was set by this point, now that is some like that sends chills up my spine to think about yeah because the person was kind of so we're saying that the person was hanging in the room and then uh, and then asking for somebody to come in something was going on somebody had to say come on in and turn on the lights i don't know if it was the perp i don't know (gasps) if it's the victim but man someone let me let me find props someone needs to check in on props at this point and say like you doing good man because like i can't imagine being in that position yeah, no, nah, nah, I'm sure they weren't, they're not paying that person enough. Get the hell out of there. Yeah. Get a, get a manager. Maybe go back to uh, Mulebach or whatever. It's too pricey. Th- listen, that's a good thing. Mulebach priced themselves out of Murder Hotel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good thing. Good price won't go- disappear in the night. I don't know. So anyway, back to the situation here in the investigation. Uh, Owen had bruises on his neck, suggesting some sort of strangulation. He had fractures on the right side of his head, suggesting that he had been multiple times hit in the head. One of the stabbing wounds even punctured his lung. I don't know if they were going for the heart, but they were all kind of around the, just above the heart area. The detectives found everything that Owen had brought, not that it was a whole lot. Again, it was just those three small items. But they also found additional pieces, a safety pin, a hairpin, an unused cigarette, and oddly enough, a bottle of diluted sulfuric acid, entirely full too. They also noted what they hadn't found in their report, which was things that you would normally see of a hotel goer. There were no clothes in the drawers or in the closet or anything else of that nature. Also, the hotel toiletries were all entirely missing, the soaps and everything like that. And the detectives could not find Owen's clothes that he had been wearing, save for a single necktie that seemed to be made from a company in New Jersey. There were no weapons in room 1046, ruling out suicide as a cause of death, and fingerprints were in fact found 
in the room on the phone, and they were believed to be from a woman's hands because the fingerprints were small. What's odd here, small or otherwise, maybe the positioning on the phone might have been that of a female holding the phone, but the biggest point here that I want to mention is that these didn't match anybody. None of the hotel staff, not even Owen himself. So these are fingerprints on a phone that he was recently holding that weren't his. How do we know it's a female? Why could have been uh, could have been a kid? It could have been a kid. It could have been a kid. <laughs> Maybe kids out here. Oh, we got baby murders. <laughs> got the baby murderer scooting around. Girl no one around. would suspect a six-year-old, dude. Oh no. I'm, oh man, I'm thinking the shining. They're rolling around on a big wheel. Yeah. No one suspects the kid with the big wheel. <laughs> no, not at all. That's the cool kid. Oh man, it's like it's like the okay, movie The Orphan weird. or something. I, I didn't expect like um that there was a female in play here. Or possibly. Yeah. And we'll kind of crack more into that. But, you know, you could be touching something lightly. You could be a male with smaller hands, etc. But I don't know. Forensics wasn't at its forefront in the 30s. So fingerprints were the most advanced kind of thing for them to go off of. Uh, and so, you know, they might be ex- experienced with that realm. They concluded they were a woman's hands and so on. So at, at any rate, we have still yet another person in play, maybe now a third person. But back to the investigation. Going back to Owen, he had told hotel staff that he was from Los Angeles, so naturally they contact LAPD detectives, but they found no record of a Roland T. Owen at all. There was no next of kin that could be found, and detectives figured that this was a fake name. The man's body was put on display at Melody McGilley Funeral Home in hopes of someone being able to recognize him, but no one knew his true identity. A city worker named Robert Lane says they recognized the man as he had given him a ride the night of January 3rd. Lane says he picked up a man wearing only a tank top and pants. And it was a cold night, you know, this is Missouri in January, so it gets, it gets cold. Uh, this guy's got a tank top. He he supposedly mistakes Robert Lane for a taxi, but Lane still drove him anyway because he looked hurt. And clearly it's a cold night. This guy's got a tank top. Clearly people in the 30s are much more trustworthy. Yeah, than this people. is crazy. <laughs> maybe, maybe his car doors lock on the outside too. I, yeah. I don't know. So Lane noticed this man he, that he had a wound on his arm. And Lane mentioned that it looked like he was having a bad night to which the man that he had picked up said, quote, I'm going to kill that bleep tomorrow. I'm pulling out the censored word, but he essentially uh, was insinuating he was going to kill someone. Very odd. Definitely something to note. So when looking into this, KCPD did not believe that Owen would have been able to leave the hotel room without being noticed by the staff, especially because Owen had a very distinctive scar again above his left ear that made him very easily identifiable. So if this story is is to be believed, Perhaps he dressed differently than he had the day before, or perhaps this very attentive hotel simply missed him. But either way, Robert Lane's story remains unconfirmed, but it is super interesting, and and I kind of want to put a pin in this for my own personal theories that we can come back to this in the theories. It's also worth noting that he says he recognized Owen himself, but I'm going to start drawing some lines here between this being maybe the second person whoever this mysterious individual is. Ooh, like a second suspect? Right, yeah, like, like. well, no, not the, and so instead of being the victim, which is what he's claiming, that this person is in fact the suspect, whoever the low voice guy was. Yeah, who, maybe, inside the hotel. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's, that's what my brain wants to start doing. But again, the whole story is predicated on him recognizing Owen and that Owen was the one in his car. So... I might be kind of out on a limb here. Anyway, depending on the newspaper source that you would look at, this body was viewed by anywhere between 50 and 300 people. So this is really starting to get around town now. And because word was spreading about this unnamed person, people from outside of Kansas City were actually starting to contact the funeral home, hoping that maybe this was their missing family member. As a result, the photo of Owen was shared with other police departments across the United States and detectives found that actually a similar looking man had in fact stayed at Hotel Mulebach on January 1st. Also, this person requested an interior room. So this kind of corroborates the story from Propst the Bellhop saying that 
this uh, this individual here come into this room. This Owen guy is saying he wants an interior room. He was complaining about Mulebach being too expensive. Well, it sounds like this guy was actually at Mulebach. And so they're like, cool, we got a lead, let's go. They head to that hotel, they look into the records. This individual gave the name Eugene K. Scott and also an LA address. Well, go figure, they go back to the LAPD asking about this Eugene K. Scott individual. And again, there is no record of Scott and uh, they come back and say, most likely this is the same man who stayed at Hotel President and that this person is likely using a pseudonym or various fake names. For what reason? For what reason? It was also found that this Owen Scott character had stayed at the St. Regis with another man, also while in Kansas City. So again, we have another just nugget, the tease of another person here, this time confirming again that it's a man, but no other information uh, thus far, I should say. So of course, detectives have received at this point many different leads, but the story in general on what happened with this Owen case continued to grow colder. It was reported that Owen would be buried in an unmarked grave in a potter's field, essentially a field for lower income individuals who perhaps didn't have an identity or didn't have a family or anybody. And here's where things start to get really strange. This was reported in the newspapers and this report sparked some very strange phone calls both to the newspaper that reported this information, as well as the funeral home itself, who was going to be, uh, you know, running the services. Mm -hmm. $25 were sent to the funeral home for Owen's funeral, in addition to flowers that were signed, quote, Love Forever, Luis. It's also worth noting that this money was rolled up in a newspaper and was delivered anonymously. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Gap Between the Mysteries. I'll have a new name for this every week until I figure out one that I like. Obviously, this is Trevor, but I got some housekeeping notes for you all. Thank you all for listening, by the way. We're in the new year. Isn't that fantastic? I'm, I'm optimistic. I've got my hopes up for good changes across the board. If you want to support the show, as always, store.roosterteeth.com. We have some Red Web merch in there. Whether you need that coffee mug or whatever you put in the mug, you can whatever you want to drink, you can, it goes in the mug. And we also have a shirt that you can get with the Red Web logo right there on the breast pocket area. Anyway, now on to our lovely sponsors. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by HelloFresh. Warm up this winter with fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door, contact-free. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and still enjoy high-quality veggies and protein. So, you can turn those New Year's resolutions into realities. Looking for new ways to eat well in the new year? Well, HelloFresh is here with HelloFresh Get nutritious home-cooked meals on the table. And it's never been easier than now, especially with low-calorie vegetarian and family-friendly recipes. Welcome the new year with new flavors. HelloFresh offers 23 plus weekly recipes with a range of cuisines and ingredients. So there's always something new to try. Thankfully, because of HelloFresh, I've been able to avoid going to the grocery store too awful much during this quarantine kind of period of time, uh, and I really appreciate that. I've been enjoying their recipes that keep coming to me. Lately, I've been enjoying the Korean-style beef with broccoli and ginger. It's very delicious. They make you feel like a chef. Let me just be honest with you. They give the recipes so it's nice and easy and laid out. They got the pictures to follow. They give everything in the portions that you need so there's no waste. Boom, right there on the counter. Get yourself cooking. It's good stuff, man. Go to HelloFresh.com slash RedWeb10 and use code RedWeb10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. That's 10 free meals and free shipping. Woo! Go to HelloFresh.com slash R-E-D-W-E-B-1-0 and enter that code RedWeb10. So that's all the information we have thus far in the investigation. So basically... The funeral home and the newspaper are only kind of unified by this topic and by the fact that they both received just unsolicited strange calls and then a $25 kind of thing and a bouquet of flowers came out of nowhere. Very odd. Very odd. Could have just been, I don't know, you know, sometimes you you have these mysteries or whatnot, people become really attached and they become sentimental about it or fans, etc. That's a great point. So maybe it was just someone that just 
wanted, you know, felt like this person deserved a little bit more respect. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I didn't think about that because on the other flip side, right, I got my tinfoil hat sturdily mm -hmm. stapled to my scalp. And, you know, it makes me think that whoever did this, maybe they felt guilty or maybe not. Or maybe they're just trying to smooth over the rough patches of whatever they did. Oh, damn. Maybe they did this and maybe they're trying to make amends. Maybe this was, I, I, again, I'm jumping ahead into the theory section, but again, this kind of makes me go like, maybe this was an accident because Owen wasn't coming out saying much and now someone's paying for the funeral services. I, That's expensive I don't know. too. Like, you know, maybe it was just a scuffle that went bad. Oh, and then someone just, man, they got away with it too. I mean, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know, but man, back then, I can't imagine getting away with stuff now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's just, I don't know. I mean, to your point, everyone was so attentive at the hotel. Yeah. But then on the other hand, like, seems like half of these stories have dead ends, you know? Like, they just kind of end. Yeah, it's this uh, middle ground of just everyone was so attentive and so aware of said person, but someone was able to sneak in and, and kill him. Mm-hmm. Well... The funeral was a couple months after January when the, when the whole activity, when the, everything went down from the timeline. Now we have a little bit more information that doesn't come for yet another year and a half after the funeral. So flashing forward, kind of après investigation, it's November 1936, a year and a half again after this funeral. A woman by the name of Ruby Ogletree was shown an article, just by happenstance, in the American Weekly called The Mystery of Room Number 1046. Ruby, when looking at this article, recognized the man by his distinct scar that he had on his, on his head and recognized it from a childhood accident. This was in fact her son, Artemis Ogletree, who left their home in Birmingham, Alabama at the age of 17 in 1934. So now, okay, so this Owen guy, I'm just gonna clarify everything. This Owen guy, this Scott guy, you know, he's got fake names floating everywhere. Yeah. His mother recognizes him by his very distinct scar, <sighs> saying this is Artemis Ogletree. And in fact, it was. It was? Yes. Oh. And she says he left home in Birmingham. And he was 17 years old and he left in 1934. He had left to go hitchhike in California. You know, Ruby found this article incredibly strange because of this. She had received three letters from Artemis after his date of death. After his date of death. What the? In January 5th. So since this all went down, she was receiving correspondence supposedly from her son. So now we have a fresh new lead ready to go. So then there was a this guy. Mm-hmm. Just Mr. I've got different aliases, different names. I'm moving all over the place. Was killed. But then now it appears to be killed by somebody who knew who he was. Would have to. Yeah. Would have to know where he grew up because, again, these are letters being sent to his mom in and Alabama. He left when he was 17. So this mm -hmm. is like, I don't, know, I don't know. Okay. All right. Yeah. And this was, a, again, he left a year prior. He left in 1934. I don't have that month. But in January of 1935 is when this all went down. And then November of 1936 is when the mother saw the article. Okay, so let's dive into these letters. The first letter she received was from Chicago. At least that's where it was postmarked from. She was concerned because it was typed and Artemis did not know how to type. The diction was also very unlike Artemis's previous letters and included a lot of slang. A second letter then came in May of 1935 from New York stating that Artemis was going to Europe. Soon after, a special delivery letter came in the mail saying that his ship had in fact sailed. So off to Europe, supposedly he goes. Now in August of 1935, Ruby received a phone call from Memphis, Tennessee. The person claimed Artemis had saved their life in a fight, but could not contact Ruby himself because he had moved and married in Cairo, Egypt. In addition to this, in addition to that, very specific story. He moved to Cairo and got married. This anonymous person said that Artemis could no longer write her, not just because of being in, uh, in, in Egypt, but because he lost his thumb during the fight. What? This, this sounds like a man. Man that ever lived. <laughs> 
This, what this sounds like is excuse central, all right? They came up with a way to be like, hey, I'm definitely alive, but don't look for me because I'm in Europe. Also, I'm now in Egypt. Also, I can't write you anymore because I lost my thumb in a fight. Also, the reason why a random man is calling you is because I saved his life in that fight. And it just sounds like a lie is substantiating a lie for a lie for a lie. And they're trying to tie up loose ends. That's what it reads like to me. It's all over the place. It's too crazy of a story. It's crazy. I don't believe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this, this is a red flag to me. So the man uh, supposedly spoke irrationally, but seemed to know Artemis well. Ruby gave the name to the police, uh, but it was not revealed to the public. So, you know, we can't go after this person and start searching for him. And it's also worth knowing that no records were found of an Artemis Ogletree ever going to Egypt or perhaps even Europe at all. Now we're gonna really flash forward to 2003. A man named Joseph Horner, a historian in Kansas City Library who was writing about this case received a strange phone call. The anonymous caller told Horner that they were inventorying a recently deceased elderly person's stuff and found a shoebox filled with newspaper clippings relating to Ogletree's case. In the box, they also said that there was an item mentioned in the newspaper article that was also in this box that they found from this old person. The caller did not reveal what the item was and then hung up. That's the end of that. <laughs> I am tired of these people out here with their goofy phone calls, leaving some breadcrumbs and then slapping them off the table again. Just another what? cold dead end. You, and that's where that ends? That's where that ends. That is everything we know about this case all the way up to 2003 where somebody's trying to like research this. I mean, okay, like whatever, right? The person mm. calls hey, this person is deceased, is what you're telling me, and they have a shoebox of all this information of this case. Mm -hmm. And if it went cold there, I'd say, all right, well, maybe, whatever, right? Someone that was a fan of the mystery, et cetera, et cetera. But then they, you can't contact them again? Where's your caller ID, son? It's 2003, man. Helpful for the investigation. Like what is going? Like what is going on? Is this a prank? Like what is happening here? It could be a prank, dude. What it it the could be a prank. Happening here, dude. It it it's just so frustrating. This is one of those things where you feel like you're really going down a road. You're like, all right, cool. Rub your hands together. We got yeah. a strange phone call, and then there's nothing. There's no, like in the past, back in the 30s, when the strange phone calls were coming in, no one really documented what went down with those. Uh, you know, at the at the funeral home or at the newspaper. This is around an unsolved murder case, folk. Let's like start writing things down. And then in 2003, you get a strange call. You can't ID this person. You can't look at phone records to figure out the number that called you and track that down. Man, man, I don't know. Someone's in on it. Someone knows something. Get the task force behind this. Get the task force Everybody out here. Everybody get your badges out. Let's, let's, get, <laughs> let's get down to business. <laughs> Clip it on. All right. Yeah, I, I don't know. So this, yeah, this could be a pranker, or if the individual is still alive that perpetrated this act, right, or that was involved in some way that maybe paid these $25 and put the flowers out, maybe this Luis character, you know, I don't know. There's nobody changing, chasing down these, these people, these names. I don't know, but maybe they feel guilty. Maybe, like you said, they felt intimately close to this case, and so they wanted to check in on it. Maybe... Whoever did this is just like thinking about this all after all these years. Maybe they're still alive and they're at a dusty 95 and, and they're they're listening to this podcast right now. You don't I just don't know. But but that's what makes this case so creepy, so unsettling, and so unsolved. So there's a couple key questions here that are worth reflecting back on. Who sent the letters? Perhaps who wrote the the notes that were in the room that were talking about this Don individual? Right. You also had that letter that was the letters that were sent to the mother, but you also had the note with the flowers that said, Luis, who is writing these, all of these and why, you know, perhaps that, you know, can we even trust what's going on during the investigation and beyond? Because this became a little bit of a a pop culture thing. It got it got popular. People were looking for this to be maybe their missing loved one. Maybe because of that, stories started floating about and evidence got contaminated with folklore. There's also that diluted sulfuric acid at the scene, which is very strange. This is an acid, by the way, uh, that is very potent. You would not want to get it on your skin. 
If you're thinking about dissolving a body, again, this is a small diluted bottle. Sulfuric acid will start dissolving your tissue. It's gonna take a very, very long time. It's not like some sort of Breaking Bad situation in the bathtub. Right. And then, who's touching this phone? Who's locking Ogletree in his room? Do they know him? Does he know them? Like, ugh. anyway, those are my key questions kind of going into the theories. How is it like, it, especially like we talk about how um, attentive this hotel is. Um, it's just crazy that they didn't recognize anybody else or, or anything like that. Well, we have some stories. Oh? Whether they are directly related or not, it's hard to say. Uh, but we'll dive into those kind of anecdotal pieces of evidence here in the theories. But yeah, I agree with you. It seems very strange to know so much about this room and when it was locked and the goings on in and out of it, but to not really know much beyond that, what the goings on of the broader hotel, like, I don't even know much about that party that happened down the hallway, what that was all about, what it was for, if it was related at all. <sighs> I don't know. Right, yeah. So anyway, let's crack into these theories. Let's focus on this Don character that was listed on one of the notes. We're going to give this, the perpetrator of this theory, the name Don because of that note. And we're going to go with this first theory that kind of focuses in on him as the single and sole perpetrator of the crime. So in this theory, some theorize that Don was not only the man in the note found in the room, but that he was also the man that Ogletree had supposedly stayed with at St. Regis. Perhaps they had some sort of disagreement and parted ways at this point, and that's why Ogletree went to the Muehlbach and then eventually on to the President Hotel. This also, this Don character, could have been the person that Mary Soptic had heard when she was trying to replace the towels earlier on in the timeline. In 1937, a man by the name of Joseph Ogden was arrested for murder, and it was found that in 1934, Ogden had visited Kansas City and stayed in hotels under the name of Donald Kelso and Duncan Ogletree. Oh. It's a bit specific, right? You have the Don there yeah. and you have the Ogletree, which I gotta be, listen, I'm not trying to help you out if you're out here doing nefarious stuff, but if you're gonna take a pseudonym, maybe don't yoink your friend's surname. <laughs> my name's Duncan Ogletree. Dude, my real name is Ogletree. What are you doing? Yeah. Anyway. Not imaginative at all. Not at all. So KCPD even matched the handwriting of this individual, this guy that was arrested years later for a different murder, matched that handwriting to letters received from Ruby Ogletree. And uh, to me, that's like, boom, caught red hand. Come on, this is the guy, we got it. This is Peace our guy, in my, this is our guy in my opinion, but hey, more information to be found. Despite this evidence, KCPD keeps this case open. Thus, we talk about it today. There are two more theories that remain for who this Don could be though, and I wanna kinda of touch on those. One is simply that he was, in my opinion, the tank top man that was in the car, you know, that car ride that we discussed earlier. Now, the wrinkle in that is that the, the driver of that car said he recognized Owen, which was the victim, uh, and so maybe not the case. Just a theory, a yeah. hunch, if you will. But another one goes a little bit more into depth. So after 1 a.m., on January 3rd, the elevator operator, Charles Blocker, recalled seeing a woman, the staff believed to be a prostitute, which I will call a commercial woman because that's what they called them at the time. And, uh, and they, they thought that she was a commercial woman based on her various visits to male guests. Mm. That night, Blocker took her to the 10th floor, and five minutes later, he was again called back to the 10th floor to meet the commercial woman again, five minutes after. So like he dropped her off, went back down to the main floor, came back five minutes later because she was asking for the elevator. She told Blocker that her client in 1046 had not shown up. The other time she had seen him, he always showed up, always. So this is like a repeated thing. She wondered if he was in fact in room 1028 since she saw the lights on in there. So she stayed on the 10th floor for another 30 minutes or so before calling the elevator again to leave. She came back a whole hour later with a man and called the elevator to the ninth floor. Later still, Blocker received a signal to go to the ninth floor and was called by the woman again, who was now leaving. So real quick, she went up to the 10th floor. Yep. She went to 1046, five minutes later, she's like, this guy's not here. No show. Maybe he's in 1028. She kicks around a bit and then she's like, I'm out. An hour later, she goes to the ninth floor with someone, spends about 30 minutes, 
and off she goes by herself. 15 minutes after that, the man who had accompanied the woman to the ninth floor also called the elevator and he left the hotel and complained about not being able to sleep. So that's probably his excuse. He's probably going back home. So the reason I mentioned all this information is because people uh, theorize that this ninth floor man was actually Don. Furthermore, the fact that there's a woman's fingerprints on the phone led many people to suspect that this Don character did not act alone, and that's kind of where we enter into theory number two. And I would wager, you know, especially if there's a staircase or a fire escape of some sort, that they could have gotten off at uh, level nine and then walked up, up to ten, and that was their kind of lie, right? So theory number two kind of builds off of this story, but opens it up and kind of talks about a love triangle. Because the torture uh, was so brutal, the wounds he sustained were so violent, some theorized that this was a personal crime, that it was done out of passion. So those two strange phone calls that I mentioned earlier, there is some more information on it. Those two strange phone calls are kind of what helped lead to this theory in addition to the woman's fingerprints and what the elevator guy was seeing. When it was reported that the mystery man would be buried in the potter's field, the newspaper received a call from a woman who said Owen would not be buried in a pauper's grave, as the article had written, and that someone would be sending money for the funeral. When asked what happened to Owen, the caller simply replied, quote, he got into a jam. Another anonymous caller phoned the funeral home, confirming that he, he, not she this time, would send the money for the funeral. So now we have a woman and a man. Oh. These are the people behind these two mysterious phone calls. But the man then specified the cemetery saying, he'll be near my sister, like as a request or as a demand. Wouldn't that narrow down who yeah. it is? That's what I'm wondering. How did you, how did you not figure out that, I don't know, man. But when asked what happened to Owen this time, the caller, this individual, replied that Owen had jilted a girl he intended to marry and that he had met at the hotel president to discuss this with Owen. So now we have a, a more vivid image. Much like this we see on this show, I like to draw a couple pieces from each of the theories. So far, I think that there's a lot in theory one that's interesting, but certainly gets expanded upon here in theory two. Yeah. That the man that was heard in the room, the hand that touched the phone, that, these, that there were two other people here uh, perhaps the brother of this woman, and this woman was somebody that he was going to marry, and that he got caught red-handed trying to sleep with a woman of the night. Crime of you know? passion. And it was a crime of passion, and maybe that's why when he was caught, he didn't want to go off. Listen, I'm, gonna, I'm going way off script here, but maybe this is why he didn't want to say anything. He didn't want to get his lover in trouble or oh. the family. Maybe this is why she said love forever, Luis. Maybe this is why the flowers and the money were there. And, the, and then somebody was contacting the mother so as to give some sort of sense of false closure. That's me. That's me connecting these dots. Oh, my God. I'm ooh. I feel like I feel pretty confident in that. Yeah, I could I could follow and get behind that. Before hanging up, okay, this is okay. This is the last piece of information. I'm just titillizing you at this point. Before hanging up, the caller, the second one, the man, said, "Quote: Cheaters usually get what's coming to them." Um, mm, there it is. Mm -hmm. mm. Yup, yup. Now we have it. Now we have it. The commercial woman searching for her client may have been the same woman who called the newspaper. So that's where everything starts to come together. And some theorize that the visitors and loud voices the night of January 3rd were actually not the party, but the jilted girl and her brother arguing with Ogletree. So boom, there you have it. Ooh. That sounds pretty strong to me, but there are a couple more theories worth, worth diving into. One, this next one's a, a bit brief, but I would be remiss if we didn't dive into it. So the third theory purports that uh, Ogletree was staying with his boyfriend at St. Regis, and that was the second individual that was seen with him at that hotel, and that Ogletree was actually targeted for being homosexual, which at this time in, in history, unfortunately, yeah. uh, was definitely not handled very well at all, to say the least, to put it extraordinarily lightly. And, and that could be another reason, perhaps, that an ex-girlfriend felt jilted, you know, maybe he was uh, bisexual in a way and that he was um, seeing two different and, and that this woman might have been upset by that activity or that right. he left me for another man or something. 
this is, I, I just want to go ahead and say that this theory does attempt to stitch together some of the pieces here that we know, but ultimately it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. It doesn't it doesn't really wrap the whole thing together, right? You, the biggest thing to me is, especially the fingerprints on the uh, the phone that were supposedly feminine, the fact that there is um, this sulfuric acid in the room. But you know that could have been the the real love triangle was the man and the woman in the room could have been an ex girlfriend and his current boyfriend. It's hard to say, and that maybe he was running off to these other hotel rooms to put some distance in there. It, it's really hard to say. The, the last piece that kind of goes into this theory is that maybe this is why he was so private during his stay at the hotel room. Maybe this is why he kept the lights off so he right. couldn't be ID'd. That if somebody came looking for him at all the local hotels, I'm looking for a man with this, that, and the other. Can you help me out? Well, there's a man with the lights off. I don't, who knows what that guy looks yeah. like. You know, so it kind of addresses a few of the pieces here. And it is a, uh, a common theory, but... It's not as solid as as the pairing of the, the theory that we're subscribing to right now the most. Yeah, it's not as solid for sure. And the last piece here also kind of plays on the times and the thing, the goings on of Kansas City in the 30s. So the fourth theory purports that this was a mob hit or that this was related to the mafia or organized crime in some way. That perhaps Ogletree was involved too deep with the Mafia, or that he was caught up in gambling, because the Kansas City mob was actually very, very active during this time, and so that makes this entirely possible. Another piece that falls very nicely into this is that this Don character might not just be a name like Donald, it's a commonly used title for someone who is like a Mafia boss. Oh yeah, the Don. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's like writing a note to the Don, but listen, if you're writing a note to a Don, I probably wouldn't tell him to wait. Cause let me go back to that note. Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Just back in 15 minutes, period. Wait. Period. Mm, 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 so Yeah, you don't tell the Don what to do. He tells you what to do. Yeah, you, he tells you what to do, and you don't tell him to wait. No. <laughs> Least of all. Uh, you would ask for his patience, and he might give it to you. That's an interesting theory, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The murder, it's also worth noting, occurred not much longer after Prohibition had ended. And if you recall, the Prohibition period uh, was a time in the United States where alcohol was banned, but was still traded and sold by criminal organizations. So, you know, maybe uh, this is where the criminal organization at hand had a strong foothold in the city. Maybe they still had their influence because this was only two or three years after Prohibition had ended. And I don't know if it's really worth mentioning or if it's related in any way, but both of the bellboys that checked on him that morning, that was supposedly right after the situation had gone down, both assumed or claimed that he was drunk or guessed that he was drunk. And so, Ooh, how did you get know, his hand on that? Booze is flowing. Well, this is after prohibition to be fair. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So it's not a, I don't know. I just wanted to mention it just in case. And then going back to Charles Blocker's story about the prostitute going to the 10th floor, then the 9th floor, could also indicate perhaps there's some kind of organized crime going on. That maybe she was a part or associated with this organization, that she was being coordinated or managed in a way, right? To, to say it uh, as a gentleman would, right. managed. <laughs> yep. That's a very uh, long <laughs> You have a, a client on uh, 10th floor, 1046 uh, at... 11 o'clock, you know, or whatever, you know, maybe there was something there, but his story seemed to indicate that maybe there was something uh, of an organized crime sort of thing happening. And that maybe when the anonymous caller claimed that Ogletree was a cheater, that maybe they meant about money, that they cheated with money or cheated with gambling or cheated on some sort of debt sort of situation. And the, the aliases in play, the erasure, of evidence, the lack of bringing things to the hotel room, all kind of point even more towards organized crime. The brutality of it, you know, the, the many stabbings, the many brutal hits to the head, the blood splatters all over the place. Oddly enough, I would I would put sulfuric acid in this kind of category. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe it was something brutal, like they wanted them to drink it to suffer in some way, because clearly this guy was suffering and it wasn't uh, it wasn't a quick thing. But at that point, if he was dying, why wouldn't he want, just want to say that it's, you know, it's the mob or something? Right. You know, maybe maybe they didn't uh, intend to kill him. 
maybe they didn't think they were going to kill him and maybe he didn't think he was going to die. True. And maybe that's why he kept kept quiet because if he then said something right, and, he and then lived, bye-bye birdie. You just don't want to mess with that. So so that's another uh, piece that kind of comes into this here puzzle is they're, they're saying like, well, maybe he thought he was going to make it. And so he didn't want to narc. He didn't want to like give up the mafia or whatever. Yeah, blow the whistle. Yeah. But uh, the theory continues on to say perhaps whoever did this intended to rough him up, which is why an effort was made to give him a proper burial because, you know, the mafia boys, at least as pop culture tends to show us, is yes, they might they might put the squeeze on you, they might put the kibosh on you, but they're Catholic boys. They want to make sure that you're treated with respect afterwards. Maybe Ogletree was involved in a deeper way, part of this mafia family. I don't know. This is really a very interesting theory that could could kind of nestle in here in a way that we'll just never know. And maybe maybe this is why the police just said we're just gonna not touch this. Maybe they got paid off. Ooh, interesting. So like, yeah, we're just scared by the mob. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing: if they wanted to scare him and not kill him, then why stab him a bunch of times next to the heart? Yeah, yeah. I, pff, maybe they just hey, listen. I know where the heart is. This is gonna really scare you. I'm gonna violently stab right in this little spot above your heart. I don't know, man. It seemed like someone yeah. was going right for that heart, and that's where I kind of lean on the crime of passion, the crime of a jilted lover. You know, whether it be a, a boyfriend or the brother of that lover, that that story seems to nestle in nicely and and rope this up, especially. And I'm I'm glad you pointed this out because I'm reminded of it, especially because they knew where the mom lived. I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying the mafia couldn't dig that information up, but man, but there wouldn't be. I don't know. I don't feel like the mafia would be like. Hey, we're sorry or, <laughs> or, or sorry about it or be so sentimental with it. Well, it wasn't as much a sorry as it was a, hi, I'm your son. I'm using a lot of slang, which could be more mafia speak, right? I'm using a lot of slang. Oh, the letters are coming from Chicago and New York. That's some mafia central. <laughs> oh man, now I'm, now I'm back on the fence because oh, they God. might be trying to cover up the loose ends. Hey, it's me, your son, using slang now. Also, I can type right. Also, I'm going to Europe. Also, you'll never hear from me again because I lost my thumb in a bar fight and I saved someone's life. So hey, I'm okay though. I had an honorable going out. Never look for me again. Bye. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's such, that's such a closer, like, we're trying to close the story. Your son's a hero. But also, you're never going to hear from him again. And don't look. Like, But uh, they left the body there, though. So who cares if the mom goes searching? That's What's true. What's she going to do, man? Oh, that's true. <laughs> A little baby bottle of sulfuric acid ain't going to handle that body. I'll just tell you that right now. Maybe a little baby bottle in like a, a handful of years. <laughs> like, Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that's what we got, man. That's what we got. I want to I want to go back to our rating system here on on confidence on uh, and and I'll I'll leave it to you to figure out which theory you like uh, Fredo but on a scale of one this is ludicrous wild Looney Tunes to ten we solved this case we've got the solution where do you find yourself lying on this one oh, I can give it a seven and a half ooh yeah. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm subscribing to that that crime of passion type mm -hmm. thing. There's just a lot of things paying for the funeral. Like that's huge, right? Mm -hmm. Writing to the mom. Um, I think they 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 wrote to the mom more so to just kind of put her at ease, whatnot. Right. Like the whole mafia thing. I don't know. There's a bunch of holes that I'm seeing in it. Um, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's just where yeah. I'm, where I'm feeling. I I feel like I, I was going to go with like a six and a half or something. And that's only because the mafia piece came in and started rattling my brain. But when we were kind of going through, you know, the, the love triangle theory, I was like, okay, I'm in this. Like, I'm <laughs> strong on this one. I'm good with maybe like, I was like at an eight on that one. And I, so I'm going to balance it out. I'll say like a seven. I'm going to say like a seven on that one. But I align with you. I align with you on that. But that's the conclusion as well. As, as far as we know, at least, on room 1046 and our, our poor boy, 
Artemis Ogletree. If you want to see any of the photos, I don't think there's going to be a photo of him sitting in his room in the dark. <laughs> uh, but I've known about this case for a while, and I stumbled into a picture of our boy Artemis, as well as the police sketch of him. And I got to say, it was very unsettling to actually see what he looked like and to put a, a, a face to the crime. Oh, God. But... If, uh, if that's something you're intrigued by, if you want to see any of the other visual pieces of evidence, we like to put those up on our social media page, at RedWebPod. You can suggest mysteries that you stumble into, whether they're on the internet or they're old classics, old favorites. Eventually, we might dip our toes back into cryptids. Yeah. But either way, we're, we're gearing up. Ah, Zodiac was solved recently. Oh, as of yeah, the time of dude. the recording here, so I'm going to go ahead and tease out that we've probably already released that episode actually now that i'm thinking about it but uh if it's out go check out that episode highly recommend it because it's very fascinating uh but for us we haven't recorded it yet so i'm super excited to dive into it my guy i can't wait dude that's um that's a big one that it's a big i know nothing about and it's huge Mm -hmm. i think it was going around going on in san francisco yeah i think so yeah so that's where i was born and raised so I am really looking forward to that one. This one's a a fantastic one, though. This one was like, I don't know. It's weird to say fun, but I felt like I I really like was able to play around with this in terms Mm -hmm. of what I thought about it. So, yeah, it was unsettling to say the least. But I think that there's a, you know, there's a little, um, a little bit of calm that comes with perhaps knowing or getting close to a solution. You you resolve, you button up a couple of the loose ends that, let's be honest, this case was riddled with. But again, that concludes the mystery of Room 1046. Thank you guys for listening. We will see you all next Monday for another mystery. Mystery.